you for joining us for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Jacob Turner, a barrister at Fountain Court. In this episode, we explore ESG risks and disputes, including legal sources of rights and obligations, issues surrounding greenwashing, anti-ESG shareholder litigation and other emerging trends, as well as some practical tips on what proactive steps organisations can undertake to protect themselves from ESG risk. Joining me in this discussion are Richard Lissac Casey, a Silk at Fountain Court who is recognised internationally as a leader in the fields of banking and financial services, anti-corruption, financial crime, commercial fraud, health and safety, public inquiries and regulatory breaches. Richard is described in the directories as a stellar performer with unsurpassed positive energy, and he has been listed for several years as one of the Chambers and Partners stars of the bar. Peter Wickham is a partner at Slaughter and May in the Disputes and Investigations Group, who has a broad-ranging international commercial arbitration and multi-jurisdictional litigation practice. Peter has significant expertise in ESG, energy, infrastructure and natural resource disputes, and has been described in directories as formidable and an outstanding lawyer. Suzanne Spears is the founder and principal of Paxus, a boutique public international law firm. She was previously a partner at Allen and Overy in the International Arbitration Group, where she also co-headed the Global Business and Human Rights Practice and co-founded the ESG Group. Suzanne is recognised globally for her expertise in the ESG field, and she advises clients on dispute resolution and prevention, investigations and due diligence. She is regularly instructed to advise on highly sensitive social and environmental issues. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Peter, can I ask you to begin by defining what ESG means and explaining a bit about why it has become so significant in the past few years? Sure. I mean, start with a difficult question, I suppose. Defining ESG, I think, is one of the most difficult things at the moment. In essence, in my view, it's it's expanded really over the past five, ten years to encompass pretty much everything, or at least people think it encompasses pretty much everything. The E, the environmental aspect of it, I think is relatively self-explanatory. And I know we're going to come on to, to describe in more detail what precise that means in terms of claims. But, but the S and the G really could expand to anything if you want them to. And I suppose there's a traditional view that it, it's really more activist type matters. But I think it's gone beyond that now. And it's getting just more into the usual investor discourse. It's a very broad church. And effectively, these days, I think it could pretty much cover everything. I quite agree. One of the great challenges in this area seems to me to lie in its definitional breadth. And as you say, the E, we probably all understand, the S and G could mean anything to anyone, depending upon what they mean it, want it to mean. And the fact we have a singular term that serves as a collective for a business impact on the environment, on society as well as how robust and transparent its governance is in terms of leadership, pay, audits, controls, shareholder rights, etc., just shows what a, a hugely capacious basket it is for claimants in particular who seek to frame a claim in uh, the contentious activist world in which we presently appear to live. And Both the virtue and the vice of ESG conceptually lies in its breadth. Well, I very much agree that in this very politicized world we live in, having a term as broad as that is quite dangerous because it can be utilized for very many purposes. And really in its inception, ESG as an acronym was simply about identifying material risk factors that matter to company profitability and shareholder value creation. And as we'll discuss later, the really underlying reason for these ESG culture wars that we're seeing in the United States and now increasingly as well here across the Atlantic is really just this conflation of the idea of material risk disclosures, which are what is wanted by investors and resisted by some companies. The conflation of that with political issues is really why we're getting these culture wars. And I would like to see these separated out. And I would also like us to go back and consider 
the origins of a parallel agenda, which is the one about getting corporations to take accountability for their impacts on environment, society, and governance issues. And that is a separate type of agenda, which I think is the one that we are seeing pursued through legislation and litigation in the European Union and then as well in the UK. So I think we can see there's already just within the term ESG quite a lot of scope for disagreement and debate as to what it means, whether it's a good or a bad or a neutral thing. Perhaps it would help to talk about the sources of ESG obligations. Suzanne, could you tell us a bit about the international picture, where these obligations have come from? Absolutely. And again, I think the distinction is we're looking from an international law perspective at what are the impacts on environment social factors as opposed to what are the impacts on companies? What are companies' impacts rather than impacts on companies? And what we saw was a a long period international um, efforts to negotiate a treaty on business and human rights whereby activists discovered or were of concern about the lack of regulation on a global level transnational regulation and saw regulatory gaps in the global economy. And so back in 2011, we had a product called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights that sought to somewhat address these global governance gaps. They reminded governments that it is their primary obligation to regulate, to protect human rights, including from corporate actors. And they also established a social expectation uh, that companies also had a responsibility to respect human rights. And that is really the framework that we're seeing being picked up in regulation and what the social responsibility of companies to respect human rights really means in practice is an obligation to do human rights and environmental due diligence. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in practice, but that is the element that now we're seeing manifesting itself in For example, the EU's proposed uh, corporate sustainability due diligence directive and some of the national legal frameworks that we're seeing, for example, in, in France and elsewhere across the EU. One thing that I thought was interesting in what you've just said is the distinction between human rights and environmental sources of obligations. I think there are some examples where there has been overlap between those two fields. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about how there have been some cases in which one has been used to blend into the other? Of course. And indeed, we saw climate change increasingly being presented as an issue of human rights. And the link between climate change and human rights is very easy to see as something of a factual matter. The impact on people's lives caused by weather events and so on. But as a legal matter, it's an extremely complex connection to make um, due to issues of causation, etc. But we saw one court really tackle the issue in the Netherlands where it first found against the Dutch state that the failure to take more ambitious action to comply with the Paris Agreement amounted to, in fact, a violation of human rights, and then moved on to find that actually a corporate actor could likewise be considered to have, in effect, breached its own duty of care by its failure to take action to mitigate risks of climate change. And of course, that was the case brought against Shell And it was quite an innovative and noteworthy ruling that the Dutch court ordered a private actor to reduce their emissions, including their scope three emissions. And that was based on the obligations that emanate from the European Convention on Human Rights, which the court found uh, climate change to violate the rights to life and the rights to family and personal life. So that's a very interesting application by way of Dutch tort law and an interesting provision of the Dutch Civil Code, uh, an open norm in the Dutch Civil Code that allowed it to import into Dutch uh, domestic law the obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights and apply them to a corporate actor. That shift 
that you just mentioned from international law obligations, which predominantly touch upon states, moving towards private law obligations on actors such as companies is one which we've seen not just in the Netherlands, as you mentioned, but also in the UK. Peter, could you tell us a bit about the main private law actions that we've seen being used in the past few years against UK companies? Yeah, sure. I mean, Suzanne's exactly right that you are seeing international obligations that that previously we would have associated with governments and then legislative change is is filtering down, trickled down into private law claims. I think one of the issues there is perhaps a lack of legislative development that people would have expected. And so you're getting litigation as activism through the courts on private law causes of action, whereas, you know, otherwise you'd expect them to tackle the government through that that way. And you're also seeing private actors themselves, I suppose, incorporating these public law instruments to some extent. So, for example, incorporating the guiding principles into their own codes of conduct, into their own terms of business, generating effectively the basis for claims that that come off the back of that. It's probably just worth thinking about the types of claims that, that really are emanating. I think you've got private tort law claims, which are now pretty well established as a as a gateway to these types of actions, where you're looking either at using English tort law or a, a foreign foreign law, because you can have all these claims heard under local law, of course, in the English courts as well, or at least that's the the attempt from some of these cases. And you'll find that people bringing these standalone causes of action for breach of duties of care in relation to obligations that are alleged to be under, for example, UN GPs, or in relation to um, wider climate change or sustainability issues. So that's, you know, factoring through into general tort claims. There are, I think, uh, uh, other actions that are, are coming out of the woodwork as well. We've seen recently two examples of derivative actions, one against the USS pension scheme. That's a common law derivative action and one against Shell and its board of directors, which is a statutory derivative action. So that, again, is a, is a novel way of trying to enforce or implement um, perceived climate change obligations or sustainability obligations in the, in the private sector. And I think, obviously, the, on the other side, you you perhaps also need to think about public law actions, but not in the traditional sense. So there's a lot of judicial review going on now, which really is quasi-private law challenge. And whereas before, you know, you would get a challenge to a regulator's actions, a challenge to a government department's actions, squarely aimed at the decision-making of that public authority, you get that now, but in the context where really what's being challenged is the business of a private sector actor being challenged via a judicial review, which I think is is a pretty developing area and one where the courts seem to be a bit more receptive, actually. The nature of the types of companies that we've been talking about thus far will, in general, be highly international entities, groups of entities with a global footprint. And so I think it it is sensible to think about not just the UK substantive obligations, but also those in other jurisdictions. Suzanne, could you tell us a little bit about the sources from a US North American perspective of ESG obligations that might also be relevant to these kinds of companies? Absolutely. Well, as you will know, historically, the US was sort of the hotbed of litigation and in fact was for long periods of time considered the forerunner in the sort of litigation that we're talking about. And the linchpin in that was the Alien Tort Claims Act, which was utilized to bring claims against companies for their activities overseas, very often um, implicating their subsidiaries and very often Claims for complicity in violations of international law, customary international law, and that's a statute that provides a basis for jurisdiction over those claims. As we know, our U.S. Supreme Court has slowly eroded the extraterritorial application of that statute, and as a consequence, we see litigants turning to state law claims now, which do not have the same difficulties with the extraterritorial application because very often they are expressly 
designed to be used extraterritorially, unlike the Alien Tort Claims Act, according to our Supreme Court. And so you're actually still seeing some of these cases going forward, but they're not making quite as much um, headlines as they used to, because instead of being in federal court, they're in state courts. And just by evidence of the fact that these are ongoing, we had a settlement only a week before trial in July of ExxonMobil settling a claim that was 20 years in the making brought by Acha uh, villagers in Indonesia, whereby presumably the, the company decided on the week of uh, the trial date having been set and a week before trial, it was best to bring closure to this case long-running case. So the risk of litigation is still very present in the United States, just going forward in a different manner. And we certainly have securities actions and the kind of greenwashing claims that we were talking about in the UK. In terms of regulation, I would say that the US is actually somewhat at the margins of the agenda and falling behind. We do not have a proposal that is nearly as advanced as, for example, the European Union's CSD triple D. By contrast, we do have, though, a very targeted due diligence statute, which is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, that Forced Labor Prevention Act. And that is, of course, targeted with a focus on China and the Xinjiang region and does make it very difficult for companies to be able to comply if their products have any origin in that region. So we have different initiatives going on. But then, as we'll talk about, we also have quite a politicized environment in terms of forward progress on these types of legislation, having now been very much caught up in this ESG backlash. One of the striking things about what you've just said is the sheer geographical breadth of the issues which we see being dealt with within the UK, the US, and other jurisdictions where we are used to litigating. What we tend to see is a issue which arises on the ground in one particular country then being litigated in a completely different country, which may have a very different legal system. I've been involved in cases involving Sierra Leone. I know that various of us around the table have been involved in a case involving Malawi, the Maldives. Peter, I wonder if you could tell us a, a bit more about why it is that cases from all these different parts of the world end up in the UK courts, and whether Brexit is likely to make any difference to those trends. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of different factors that have resulted in this litigation kind of mushrooming here. First, I think there's been a, a receptiveness and a willingness of the court system itself to hear the cases, and we'll come to why. But but generally, I mean, there there is a risk, I think, perhaps, that the English courts are are taking a slightly neocolonialist approach that effectively they say these cases can be best heard here rather than in Kenya or Tanzania or elsewhere. There's obviously a historical similarity between a number of these systems, their legal systems, but it's not just that because we're also seeing claims, you know, from Brazilian environmental claims which don't have any similarity to the common law being brought here as well. But I think that is a factor. There's a kind of ease at which English lawyers, if the system is similar, you don't need to have any evidence effectively of foreign law. You can do things quite simply. So that that's one factor. I think there's a very well-developed claimant bar here now with, with some very well-established firms, again, with funding, that again means these claims that, that probably could not have been brought or might not have been brought in other jurisdictions can get off the ground here in a way that perhaps they might not elsewhere. And I think historically, there, of course, we've had a large number of corporates headquartered here with anchor defendants here, which has proved the kind of gateway into the jurisdiction. Uh, and to come on to your point about Brexit, I mean, historically, under the Brussels regulation, there was quite limited discretion in terms of the jurisdictional basis to take it out back out of the English courts once it was here. That obviously has increased in flexibility since we've we've left uh, the EU. I'm not sure whether or not the courts have shown all that much more willingness to decline jurisdiction in cases so far. I mean, I think they, they seem quite happy um, with their role as the vanguard of these types of claims. So I, I suspect, you know, these claims are here to stay. We're seeing more of them being brought in, in increasingly 
inventive ways, I think, where, you know, Vedanta was probably the first one that set off the chain, but they're coming in relatively thick and fast. And now we see them every day. And I don't think anyone's surprised by a new claim, which is brought on Vedanta style, um, you know, basis. I think the other issue is, is partly also cost recovery. You know, that, that does have an impact because you can quite often see that people are, are looking to that with the funders as well, the funders fee. And, and England is quite an attractive environment to bring these types of claims. And I, I suspect it will be going forward as well. So the potential Brexit dividend for major defendant companies has perhaps not eventuated. Suzanne briefly mentioned greenwashing, the criticism that is often made of major corporates of overclaiming in terms of their public materials as to the actions that they purport to be taking with respect to the environment. There's also a, a similar idea of ethics washing with respect to the SG parts of ESG. Richard, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the statutory bases on which these sorts of criticisms might lead to litigation. Certainly. Section 90 and Section 90A of FISMA is a natural home on which to base a claim founded on complaints about incorrectness um, in company literature because it provides a statutory route for shareholders of listed companies to seek compensation for loss suffered as a result of untrue, incomplete or misleading statements contained in information published by a company. A recent example of this from a, a case which, uh, of mine is the Hewlett-Packard litigation where I acted for Mr. Hussein for many years in various different forums. But as Peter pointed out earlier on, even if you give it that that is the hook or the label from a statutory perspective, what ends up eventuating is very often entirely conventional English law claims, which, which may be a further reason why this country is such a useful place to litigate these issues, because the litigant will know that the court and the system will be familiar with the essence of the claim that is being brought. Uh, I'll come to the lens it's viewed through in a second separately. So you end up with claims in tort, negligence, nuisance, conversion of property, and trespass, etc. Equitable claims, unjust enrichment, breach of fiduciary duty by directors or trustees. Criminal claims, modern slavery, which I mentioned earlier on, being a, a leading example, or money laundering, which an ever-increasingly prominent risk to uh, corporate actors in uh, any sector. Statutory claims, claims under human protection legislation, and uh, as was mentioned earlier on by Suzanne and Peter, the public law aspect of these claims, administrative law action, and so forth, as well as all the suite of subordinate claims based around directors' duties. But of course, what is different when you're labelling it ESG, if we think there is a single label of ESG at all anymore, after some of the uh, earlier conversation that may be doubted, is that what you're looking at is this sort of breach or transgression through the lens of reporting and disclosure obligations, of mis-selling of, for example, greenwashing claims, of corporate and operational issues of some gravity and sensitivity and sophistication, and also at the risk of parent company liability for the misdeeds of its subsidiaries and co-travelers in a commercial context. So I think that the breadth of the statutory hook or the, the strength of the statutory hook and the breadth of that that it carries cannot be underestimated. It is both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. So it's clear that there are a huge amount of sources of danger and indeed those sources of danger may well be increasing with the creativity that Peter mentioned uh, of claimant's litigants, and also the willingness of courts to develop traditional concepts like tort, like unjust enrichment. That said, it's not all plain sailing for the claimants. I think there are certainly some major difficulties in advancing these ESG claims and some problems that 
are often run up against in, in these. Richard, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the difficulties that claimants might face in advancing and succeeding in one of these claims. Yes, I mean, you're undoubtedly right. So far, much of our discussion has focused on the defensive position, perhaps, of what is the risk that is posed to a corporate entity and its officers by a claim being brought under the flag of ESG. But as you rightly say, there are considerable challenges that stand in the way of a claimant, not necessarily in commencing the claim, but certainly in succeeding in the claim once commenced. And I've just chosen five, just in headline form, if I just mention them. The first is one that is common across the UK system, which is group litigation, which is freighted with all sorts of risks and traps and difficulties for those that might think it a good idea to stick 100 quid in and join a a group. They may have cause to regret so doing in due course. So group litigation is, is the first threat. The second is reliance. Can the claimants prove whether uh, ESG disclosure had a sufficient impact on their judgment to have a material financially recoverable element to it? Suzanne said much earlier on in our discussion, rightly if I may say so, said that this is, this is, is a, an area that starts off, at least from a corporate point of view, as being all about the bottom line. I, I put it more crudely than Suzanne did. I hope she'll forgive me. But from a claimant's point of view, it is very interesting to see what precision is sought by the court in the claimant as a, as a matter they have to prove in order for them to recover at all. You can't just say, I looked at the annual report and I was conned by page 842. It's not good enough. You've got to be, do something much more precise than that and then establish your reliance upon it. The third and relatedly, the third challenge is causation of loss and how to attribute to the share price fall, for example, to an ESG breach. Because proving uh, the, the correlation or connection from a causative point of view between the two is conceptually and legally difficult where there may well be many different facets in play, particularly if the company is a large multinational with overseas subsidiaries that is subject to all the usual vagaries of commercial activity that we all know about. The fourth challenge allies with the third, which is where you have a complex business decision or suite of decisions, how do you isolate one particular aspect or dynamic of this which you say infringes legal principles engaged by the doctrine, if it be such, of ESG. And that is not easy. So there certainly remain very significant hurdles, as you've said, Richard, for claimants to overcome. We have touched on it a few times, and I think now is a good juncture to discuss briefly the client Earth case in which I know Peter has been involved and in which there have been two very significant decisions recently handed down. Yeah, I mean, just to summarise that case, uh, essentially that was a claim against Shell and its individual board of directors that they had breached their duties under Section 172 and 174, as Richard summarised earlier. Now, what was said there is not that they did not have in place a climate strategy, but they they had adopted a climate strategy, but that that strategy was uh, effectively irrational and that no reasonable decision maker would have taken it in terms of the energy transition. And uh, I mean, in some senses, it's a relatively straightforward case because actually what the court has said on two occasions now is, no, there's no basis for that claim. There's no prima facie test, which is is the initial hurdle you need to get over for a derivative action, and has given a restatement of 172, 174, that we would all recognize, you know, repeated the wording that's in the Companies Act. What it has rejected is the idea that there is some form of additional duty or further particularization of those duties by reference to climate change. And so to that end, it's it's a relatively orthodox and perhaps unexpected decision when you're seeing how the law has been developing in other areas, that, that actually companies' law duties are are just as as they say on the tin. And there isn't a new duty, for example, in the context of climate change. Uh, and I think that is is perhaps notable when you set against what's happening in the public law 
sector where actually the judiciary have perhaps been been changing the approach slightly in terms of their scrutiny at least of government actions when it comes to climate change it may be perhaps that at least with respect to private law actions we are reaching a high watermark with respect to the viability of these esg claims we've spoken a lot about claims being brought by activist parties who want to see companies doing more about ESG. But I wonder if we could perhaps now talk about another category of claims, which has become increasingly popular in the past year or so. Those are claims against companies for doing too much in terms of ESG. Suzanne, could you talk about the Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever case in the US and whether that might be the start of any kind of emerging trend in terms of a corporate shareholder backlash. Sure. Well, as you may recall, some years ago, Unilever purchased Ben & Jerry's. Now, Ben & Jerry's is quite a unique company in that it has a very strong uh, ethical stance and indeed its board has terms of reference that set out what those ethical positions of the company will be. And they stood by those terms even after the sale to Unilever. So that was one of the conditions of the sale was that uh, Ben and Jerry's board needed to remain somewhat independent and in fact answerable to Ben and Jerry's as opposed to Unilever itself. And some members of the board of Ben & Jerry's became concerned that the sale of Ben & Jerry's in the occupied Palestinian territories was, in fact, fueling or propagating um, harm caused by that, what they termed the ongoing occupation, and they wished to withdraw um, from sales in that region. Then Unilever effectively resisted this action and litigation ensued between these two companies within the same corporate group. And what was interesting about it is, is essentially two uh, companies with longstanding reputations as ethical champions. Unilever, I think, has, has received that uh, title as well, essentially facing off on what they each believe to be the best ethical position in this circumstance and also what's the best for the bottom line. Now they have resolved this litigation. I understand that they they settled it. But I, I think in some ways it may not be a harbinger of things to come for other companies because it was quite an unusual circumstance of two companies essentially disagreeing over what is the best way forward for their for their individual companies. But I do think that we are seeing a certain backlash, and I know we're going to talk about this, in the United States against ESG, which in my view is more about a misnomer and a misunderstanding on the part of those who are opposed to ESG of equating somehow investor concern with the material risks caused by ESG factors with some sort of woke political agenda. And that has become quite the tumultuous um, show going on in the United States. So I do think there will be more of this kind of uh, strange litigation, I think, potentially of shareholders potentially seeking to stop ESG considerations being taken into account by companies, um, but we've yet to see that play out too much yet. Do you think that in terms of the political picture in the US with these types of issues becoming party political, with them becoming part of a culture war, will that flow through into legal obligations and the substantive law which is applied, for example, with respect to the composition of the Supreme Court that we've already seen having an impact in other areas, abortion, positive discrimination, will that flow through into ESG? Well, I think what we're seeing, and I'll, I'll break down your question a little bit, I mean, we are seeing pieces of legislation being proposed across what we would call the red states, the Republican states in the United States, and essentially targeting state treasurers who have come out of the shadows into playing a very suddenly very prominent role in American life. These are the people that essentially manage the pension funds for states and their employees. And these, led by Governor Santos of Florida, these initiatives are intended to prohibit these state treasurers from taking into account ESG 
issues and this so-called woke agenda on the understanding or or uh, claim that this is a political uh, statement that companies are making that companies are taking political positions rather than in fact taking positions that are concerned with the long-term sustainability and profitability of their companies but indeed it is on the one hand simply enforcing what is already the the law which is that companies should um, have best due regard first and foremost within their fiduciary duties to the profitability of the company. That's already the law. And so these these pieces of legislation do not necessarily change that. But what they do cause is a chilling effect, I think. And what we've now heard termed green hushing of companies essentially not wanting to tout their ESG credentials for fear of running afoul um, of some of these pieces of legislation. And we're seeing companies back out some of the joint initiatives that they had also espoused. So that is a, a difficult time. I don't know that we'll see too many pieces of litigation on the back of this, but that remains to be seen. It's not just the US where we have seen this backlash against ESG policies In the UK, particularly in recent days with the result in the Uxbridge by-election, which is widely perceived to have been affected by the London Labour Mayor's proposal to increase an ultra-low emissions zone, there have been statements by both major parties to the effect that some climate obligations may need to be reconsidered or slowed in their implementation. Peter, could you talk a little bit about the way in which these trends and themes might flow through into the legal picture for companies? I think they're probably going to flow through in two two stages. I think probably if, if the parties back off environmental commitments that have been made to date or water them down, then I, I suspect the first port of call is going to be public law challenges against government authorities that are taking decisions. We've already seen over the past year or two an increased number of judicial reviews you know, focusing on regulator consents focused on challenges to central government policy when it comes to implementing the Paris Accords. I think that's probably where the initial challenge will come. As I said earlier, that indirectly impacts companies because many of the um, decisions that are being taken will impact them. For example, licenses they may have, mining concessions they may get, or, or more generally just how business is done in the UK. But I think if that doesn't prove fruitful, in terms of challenge or in terms of altering policy. And I should say there is some signs that it is proving fruitful because there are, I think, probably a growing number of successes in the judicial review sector against government decisions and and the margin of discretion that seems to be given to public authorities does seem to be decreasing a little bit in that sector. Uh, Then I think anyway, it will flow through into private law actions, which is is why, to be honest, I think we're seeing quite a lot of these actions already, that there's a a sense of public policy failing in the broader sense and people turning to use litigation as a form of activism to to try and effect change through, through the private law. And then we'll see, I think, increasingly inventive attempts to try and subsume this into uh, the causes of action that Richard was talking about earlier, whether that be a statutory claim or a common law claim, that will be the the area at which I think we see more challenge. We've spoken a lot so far about the role of litigation with respect to these challenges. Suzanne, could you tell us about what role arbitration has to play in ESG? Certainly. And I also want to go back to your question about the Supreme Court, if that's all right, because I didn't actually touch upon that. And I think that it is important to flag that not only are we having legislation in the United States that is essentially threatening ESG agendas, we also have Supreme Court decisions that are rolling back long-held positions that the government was to protect certain human rights and, in fact, also take positive actions to outlaw, for example, discrimination Um, and threats to women's human rights. And we do see corporate actors now being concerned that their own corporate policies um, promoting, for example, equality and gender rights are going to now be also under some form of threat. Um, We've seen that play out on the political side with, for example, we all know the, the dispute going on in Florida with Walt Disney taking some political positions that have been met with penalization by the government 
um, in terms of their tax status, et cetera. And I do think some companies will now be very cautious to not want to get tangled up in this culture war. Now, you asked about arbitration. This is an interesting area because we talked about how part of this agenda is about the gaps in global regulation and international arbitration is clearly a form of dispute resolution that, like transnational litigation, goes across uh, borders. And what we're seeing now is, in fact, in response to some of the climate litigation that's prompting governments to take further actions to adhere to their Paris climate change commitments. And those, a lot of those actions are being brought against governments on the basis of human rights. They are human rights claims. Now we are seeing companies respond to the climate mitigation efforts that governments are taking. For example, the Netherlands in response to the Urgenda decision that I mentioned earlier, by which the Dutch court ordered the state to reduce climate emissions by at least 25%. In response to that decision, the Dutch, among other decisions, decided to phase out the use of coal-fired power stations. As a consequence, we now see several of the foreign investors who had recently invested in such coal-fired power stations suing the Dutch state under bilateral investment treaties, seeking compensation for their future lost profits. As a result, of that climate mitigation effort by the government. Now, we're seeing these claims as well in the United States. There's a a famous oil pipeline that first, I think it would have been the Bush administration authorized, the Obama administration canceled, the Trump administration authorized, and finally the Biden administration has canceled. And we now see a claim for $15 billion um, by the Canadian investor in that TransCanada pipeline. And likewise, we see Canada subject to a $20 billion claim by an investor whose LNG terminal and pipeline has been canceled by the Canadian government ostensibly on environmental and climate change grounds. So these claims are coming home, so to speak. This is no longer claimed solely by what we think of as traditionally capital exporting northern countries to capital importing southern countries, this is actually claims being brought against those northern company countries. And in fact, the reaction will be quite forceful, including against investor state arbitration. So this is a whole other area of conflict at the moment. We've spoken so far about what ESG is, the sources of law and obligations and the backlash against ESG. Could we turn finally to talk about some practical tips that companies and those advising companies might incorporate to mitigate against some of these risks and indeed to make the most of some of the opportunities that have been discussed uh, thus far. Richard, what can organizations do to mitigate these types of ESG risks that we've been discussing? Okay, they can do quite a lot, but I think it's worth just rewinding a little bit to calibrate what I'm saying they could do, which may sound quite obvious, but it's premised upon the fact that corporate bodies have on in the UK and internationally, when governed by UK law, shown themselves able to react to many a, a wave of uh, necessity when it washes up against their business. You only have to. You can go back as far as when health and safety law was codified, uh, the Health and Safety at Work Act, making it a criminal offence to expose persons affected by the conduct of an undertaking to injury or harm to their health and safety, a crime. Companies learned how to quite quickly ensure that they didn't breach that threshold. More recently, the Bribery Act in between the two anti-money laundering provisions when they came out of just being focused upon drug dealing where it all started into ordinary commercial activity. And each time business has been able, where it would have wanted to, to put together a suite of steps to meet the new demands. And I don't think it's any different here. And so the, 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 the hit list of points I suggested to what can I 
do now to protect my company against the risks of ESG-related litigation would be these. You start by getting advice on a, uh, as soon as you can as to how your relevant external professionals think you should be structuring your business so as to comply with and therefore defeat any suggestion of uh, an ESG brought or structured claim. You stress test what you have in place. You conduct risk assessments now with a view to anticipating and mitigating potential risk areas. You'll know that this was quite commonplace in companies of size in particular who role-played a scenario against prior legislative frameworks, the sort I've alluded to, uh, and in order to be sure that under stress, what they have in place works. Thirdly, identify any risks that may exist as a result of upward or downward supply chains. This is a terribly hard thing to control, but it is vital that it is controlled. It is vital in the context of bribery, and it is vital in the context of, of ESG. You have to do apply the same methodology to your own local subsidiaries within different jurisdictions where perhaps locally different standards or criteria are thought to apply. You actively review and manage reputational risk arising from ESG issues. Sometimes overlooked, if one looks at this purely from the perspective of being a financial issue, reputational issue is, in some instances, almost as important as the financial consequences of a breach. It can be, it can pose an existential risk to a company or to its board uh, if the reputational management is mishandled. Engage with your key stakeholders to find out and to understand their ESG requirements. Much better to have the dialogue before than deal with it when it's all gone pear-shaped uh, after the event. Understand your stewardship obligations and those of your investors and those of your shareholders. It is all too easy, all too easy, to just look at this myopically from the point of view of the, of the company looking out without any consideration as to how your investors see their duties, how their shareholders see theirs. Educate and train management. Genuinely educate and train management upon their obligations. Don't just leave it in a manual sitting metaphorically or literally on the shelf gathering dust. Genuinely train as to what they've got to do and why. Dedicate sufficient resource to it. If in the accounts it's a footnote below paper clips, it won't play well in a multi-million pound business if they're held to account to find you spent the square root of nothing on your ESG policies, however fine and dandy they may look. Have a crisis response and policy plan in place to deal with what might go wrong before it goes wrong. It's astonishing to my mind in different sectors how rarely companies do this. And it, they just rush around and they phone up one of our, uh, you two to ask them for your advice when it all goes wrong without any preparatory planning, without any one person as the point person within the organization, without any document control system, nothing. It's extraordinary. And lastly, to recognize that actually all of this threat and hazard can be a positive in that if you are ESG compliant, just like if you're compliant with the other laws I mentioned earlier on and their uh, affiliates, it's an opportunity for positive reputational enhancement and actually for a more profitable company. Suzanne, are there any tips you can give with respect to ESG due diligence? Absolutely. And I, I thank Richard for those that long list, which I think is an excellent list of tips and are exactly the sort of tips that we give to clients when they're very concerned about their own risks. Often I'm, I'm asked then by stakeholders what due diligence should mean from the perspective of those stakeholders. So how can companies actually comply with the expectation that's enshrined in the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, but is now flowing through, for example, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive? How can companies comply with this obligation to take into account their impacts on others? And I think that's really the shift in mindset 
that is the most difficult um, for companies who clearly have, are are attuned to worrying about the risks to their own companies rather than the risks to others. And that's as it should have been for many years. But now the expectation is that you also take into account the risk to others. And the UN guiding principles actually, pro- and the, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive both provide somewhat roadmaps on how one does human rights and environmental due diligence. Just the simple first steps of having a policy commitment saying that you will meet a responsibility to respect human rights, though not overpromising, as all the litigators in the room will be eager to uh, caveat my recommendation. Absolutely no overpromising. Then having a true and effective due diligence process to identify, prevent, mitigate, and account for how a company actually addresses their impacts on human rights and the environment And then finally, processes to enable the remediation of any adverse impacts they cause or to which they contribute. Now, this is actually crucially important to avoid litigation. And in fact, in my experience, it can sometimes be utilized to halt litigation and return a dispute to, in fact, the country from which it emanates by setting up an effective and genuine process of remediation, whereby a company shows in goodwill and good faith that it does want to deal with the underlying root cause of whatever the litigation is. So I, my advice is usually running in parallel, if um, unfortunately a litigation has already arisen, to in parallel do take a good look at the underlying root causes of this litigation to see if there are adjustments that you can make to ensure that you're not a serial litigant and that you can uh, change that mindset and focus on how to ensure that as a business, you are not having adverse impacts on human rights. And those are a number of of concrete tips that you can take, but I say starting with a due diligence process and then also a remediation process are really the, the best places to begin. Finally, Peter, what should a company do when it receives a letter before claim with respect to an ESG action? Well, aside, I think, from the usual steps of checking all the facts, getting a story straight and, and hopefully implementing your crisis plan that, that you've implemented following Richard's recommendations, uh, I think check if it's funded. Check if there's third-party funding involved because the reason I say that is that is a a game changer in these types of cases. The playbook is completely different in terms of your own strategy, the opponent's strategy, if there's a funder involved. And, And I really think you need to get on top of that quite quickly. That then lets you inform your own strategy as a litigation strategy, not not in terms of investigating the facts and, and you know, coming up with those answers, but in terms of how you fight a claim, I think that's really, really key. Uh, and probably getting that understanding at the outset will set your strategy, will w- help you work out whether you need to get out early or whether you can continue to fight it and all of those things that actually come more into the tactics of litigation as opposed to the underlying merits of the claim. And I, and I say that because I think that that's where I think ESG claims are, are different if they're funded or not funded. I think that's a good point to close. Suzanne, Peter, Richard, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Fountain Court podcast on ESG risks and disputes. Once again, I'm grateful to Peter Wickham of Slaughter and May, Suzanne Spears of Paxus, and Richard Lissack Casey of Fountain Court for their insightful commentary. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.